All right. So we've got a couple of things I want to touch on today. Actually, a lot. Of, we're trying to cram a lot of stuff into the next hour and a half or so. So I hope you came ready. So I would like everybody to open up uh, to Leviticus chapter 1. No, that's not a joke. I only say that because I've been in churches where the pastor would get up and say, All right, this morning everybody opened Leviticus. And it was just a dead silence. And then everybody would start laughing. Ah, <laughs> what a bunch of idiots. Um, I'm sorry, I'm not supposed to say that on Shabbat. Um, so, this week we're studying the Parsha Vaikra, um, which is the first portion of the book of Leviticus. Um, Vaikra, Vaikra means, and he called, right? So, if you've been in our Wednesday night remnant studies, um, and if you're not close, I understand that, but if you are close and you haven't been, shame on you, uh, because it has been so, so good the last couple of weeks. Um, we... I'm not going to pick out anybody's names, but we've been talking about the tabernacle because that's the, the partiote we've been in, the tabernacle. And then last week, the offerings. And, and it, is, it is bringing people to tears with the healing of Hashem. It is, it's incredible. It's incredible. I go home so stoked on Wednesday nights that I, I can't, I don't sleep anyways, but I can't hardly sleep. So Leviticus, Vaikra, uh, the, the name Leviticus comes from the, the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the, of the Torah. Um, in Jewish, in older Jewish tradition, it's also called uh, Torah Kohanim, the instructions of the priest, because that's what it is. The entire book of Leviticus is the instructions for the priesthood as they operate in the tabernacle. Uh, and later in the Holy Temple, Beit HaMikdash. So, in my understanding, in my experience, Leviticus is the least read book of the Bible, but it's the most misunderstood. So I'll say that again. It's the least read, but it's the most misunderstood book of the entire Scripture. I've said this before, but how many of yours Bible reading plan kind of goes like this i'm gonna read through the bible in a year genesis creation yes god's killing it's awesome and then the flood and that's really cool they even made a really cool epic movie about it and then you have abraham and you got to love abraham because the new testament talks about it even if you don't understand really all what's going on with abraham um paul talks about him so you got to love him and you got to appreciate him and all that and then you get to joseph and all and then you get to the exodus and that's amazing um and, and it's all just ah and you get to Sinai and it's incredible and it's it's just overload and then you get to like chapter 21 and God goes or chapter 25 actually and God goes build me a tabernacle and we go let's see and we just kind of finger through the rest of those check the subheadings and we're like okay it'll it'll story will pick back up right it'll get interesting again and then we hit the book of Leviticus so so we just 
it just is a most people's read the bible in a year ends when they get to leviticus and they just go like i'm not doing this i can't i'm sorry i just can't do that so it's probably the least read book in christianity and probably the most misunderstood because it's all about the priestly service so i want to just give you a quick soapbox this is really important to me this is probably one of the favorite messages or or ideas um understandings that i've had in the last probably five or ten years um so this is very important to me and i want i want to i want you to to get this and understand this okay so leviticus is about one word generally we think about having to deal with animals and that word is what sacrifices i'm glad those of you that answered said sacrifices because I'm going to scold you in a second. No, I'm not going to scold you. The book of Leviticus is about sacrifices and the sacrificial system, right? That's what the majority of Leviticus is about because that's what the priests, the Kohanim, do. They offer sacrifices before God. Now, sacrifice, the word sacrifice implies what? Talk to me. Killing something, right? What? Blood, what else? Okay, an offering, eating, yeah. Burning with fire. Say that, Nick. Giving something up. That's the number one answer if we were playing Family Feud. That's the one I would want. When we, when we hear the word sacrifice, we think giving something up. And that is appropriate in our Protestant Western Christian theology because we as people are worthless we are sin sick and we're and i know some of you don't have this background this baggage and so please forgive me but a lot of you do and you will understand this that you were born in sin that you need to be cleansed you need to be saved you need jesus but even after you have jesus you're still a sinful wretch and so you have to sacrifice everything that you are before God. So understanding Leviticus in the context of sacrifice, and that's what these animals were, makes sense to the Christian mind. Because we are told that God is so angry over our sin. God loves you, but he just doesn't like what you do. But what you do is a result of who you are. So in a, in a really roundabout way, God really doesn't like you is what we've been told. God doesn't like the essence of who you are because where your heart is, your treasure is, right? We use all these half verses to make this context. And so God hates, has disdain. He is, what you do as a person in, because of your sinfulness is an abomination to God, which is the, one of the hardest and harshest words in the Hebrew language, the word abomination. And God hates hates you so much that for you to even be in his presence something has to die there has to be bloodshed and so god and the the israelites they were kind of primitive and and god didn't really know what he was doing yet and so he developed the sacrificial system because you can't come into this presence without bloodshed something has to die to soothe god's anger over our sin Does this sound familiar And so God implemented the sacrificial system. 
And that's how we think about the book of Leviticus. And that's how we think about the tabernacle. And that's how we think about the Jewish people. And that's how we think about God, Hashem, in the Hebrew scriptures. Can I tell you this morning that all of that is wrong? I'm not going to, I'm, I'm not going to, I thought about how am I going to say this? I'm just going to say it. That's all wrong. That's all unbiblical. It's toxic. It's putrid. And it, in my opinion, it violates the very character of God and the message of the scriptures. Let me show you how. If you look in your Bibles and you read the first few words of the book of Leviticus, this book that is, is from our background maybe, is sterile and is just about ritual and it's just about trying to appease this God who wants blood and it's just about trying to pay God off so that he doesn't hurt us. This, what we've known as this, this book, Leviticus, that, that none of us can have ever really could stand to read, what does the first few words say? And he called. Vaikra. And he called. Now, Christians all around the world run around, God called me, God called me, or I'm looking for God's call, or I'm, we're obsessed with the call of God. We're obsessed with the call of God. If God calls us to be a prophet or calls us to be an evangelist or calls us to be a teacher or calls us to be a pastor or calls us to be a doctor or a lawyer or whatever, we're obsessed with the call of God. And we chase after the call of God. And we want to be in the center of God's will. The center of God's will, it traditionally means the perfect place, the perfect time with the perfect intentions. Ain't none of us ever in the center of God's will if that's the definition. But we want to be, and superstition, we want to be in the center of God's will. We want the call of God. Whole, whole denominations have been founded over the call of God. So isn't it odd that we ignore the very book that opens with the words, and he called. This opening phrase, the book of Vayikra, sets up the tone and the theme for the entire book. It's the entire book is based around these three words, or one word in Hebrew, three in English. It's based around this very thing that everything in the book of Leviticus is built upon, the call of God. So we said, Vayikra, we think about what? Sacrifices, right? Sacrifice means I have to give up something. It means I have to... I have to deny myself. I have to, I have to cause myself pain so that God can, can be happy. Because I'm not worth anything just coming to Him myself. Ladies and gentlemen, can I just be super honest? I don't want to serve that God. It's not a God I want to serve. And I'm at a place in my life where I'm okay saying that. And if you judge me, I don't go to sleep or click off or whatever. It doesn't matter. I'm at a place where I'm okay saying that's not the God I want to serve because I don't think that's the God of Scripture. I think that's a misrepresentation of who Hashem is. This idea of sacrifice... I'm, I'm going to ask you to, to, to do something, to try, try something with me. 
when you're talking about the scripture, the Bible, Leviticus in particular, never say the word sacrifice again. Never say the word sacrifice again. Oh, that sounds really harsh. It is because this understanding has so warped our theology and so warped how we see God and how we think God sees us. It's, it's created a toxicity in, our, in, in us, in the church, and people that have walked away from God that should never have ever existed. The Hebrew word used in the scripture is korban. I'm going to show my really awful Hebrew writing. This is <laughs> Kafresh Beit. Korban, uh, noon, I'm sorry. This word, korban, comes from this three-letter root. Sorry, there should be a little thing there. There you go. This three-letter root, karav. The Hebrew word karav. Now, sacrifice means to give something up, to hurt for God's benefit, which is really for our benefit. So it reminds me of my dad whipping me going, it hurts me more than it hurts you. I doubt, I doubt it. Um, as a parent, it never hurt me more than it hurts them. <laughs> Sorry, my bad parent maybe. Um, but the, this, this, you know, maniacal God. But the word karav, it means to draw near or closeness the, the reason that this is so important is because we have warped our view of the basis of all of relationship with God and hate to tell you that's the tabernacle no, there wasn't a tabernacle in Abraham's day, but Abram still built altars, didn't he? There wasn't a tabernacle in Noah's day, but Noah landed on the ark, and what did he do? Got out and built an altar. There wasn't a tabernacle in Adam's day, but what did Adam's kids do? They made an offering. So the idea of sacrifice is fundamental to our belief and how we view God and how we view each other, how we think God views us. God doesn't want a sacrifice from you. The tabernacle and the offerings are not about God. They're about you. They were about Israel. Do we honestly think that God can be swayed by, by killing an animal? Do we really think that God can be swayed? If you serve a God that can be swayed, then you don't serve Hashem. You serve a God after your own creating, after your own image. God can't be swayed by, by 10 rams or, or 70 rams or 100 bulls. Just like God can't be swayed of an offering of $100 or $5,000 or $10,000. God don't care. Because God don't need your offering. God don't need your money. When the Israelites gave an offering, it wasn't to change God. It was to change them. It's about them. 
we won't get super deep into this, but Christians understand the idea of original sin, that you're born with a, you're born with a sin nature. There's another option to that. I know. Heresy. The other option is that we were created during the week of creation. We were created along with the animals. And that part of us shares, we have partly an animal type nature within us. Oh, well, that sounds really, does it really? Sounds really weird. Have you seen the way people act? It's America and it's March. Is it March? March of 2021. Have you turned on the TV and seen how people act? They act like what? Animals. We have intrinsically in us an animal nature that we share characteristics with the animals. That if left to our own devices, we will, we will eat each other. Not literally, well, some literally. But we will, we will minimize each other. We will, I will attack you so that I can be on top. I will degrade you. I will spread gossip about you. I will oppress you. I will try to do whatever I can to you so that I can be alpha. Hello? We, we cheat. We steal. We sit down to a table and we gorge ourselves. You know how many animals out in the wild, if they've given enough food, they will eat until they suffocate? So tell me we don't share some animal qualities with the wild animals. You remember how we talked about in Genesis, the sacred space is where God's order is, right? The temple or Eden is where God's order is. Outside of that is the wilderness. The wilderness where the order of God is not situated and not, not stabilized. What lives out in the wilderness? The beasts, the animals. And so you see this message in Scripture that as we draw closer to the presence of Hashem, as we draw closer to His, his, his ways and, and His Torah and His kingdom and His order, we become less like the animals and we become more and real human. This is going to mess with some of you. And I'm glad about it. Because I have always striven to be like God. Right? God, be like God. What would Yeshua do? You got to be like God. Anybody else found that an absolutely impossible task? Anybody else? Let me just, you don't have to raise your hands for this because it'd be real honest. Anybody else tired of trying? I'll raise my hand, y'all. Yeah, thank you, Miss Robin. (laughs) No, I'm just saying. If you get you get tired of you have this thing burned in your head that you got to be like God you got to be like God you got to be like God and you ever go like what what if radical radical thought what if God instead of being like him he wants us to be like us instead of striving to be really like God God wants us to he wants to help us be really human oh now you're into some humanist neo you know whatever kind of stuff no this isn't this is this isn't the Bible God said let us make man in our image our selim 
our image. Yeah, so from the get, from the jump, you, when you were created, if we believe Jeremiah at all, you know the verse where I like to quote, before I formed you, I knew you. We all love to quote that verse, and it's a beautiful verse, but we don't believe it. Because you can't hold that verse in Jeremiah and this idea of when I came out of the womb, God hated me because I was sick or, or, or sin sick. Hated is a strong term. But you understand, that's the, that's the theology of a lot of people. That, that God was displeased with me automatically when I broke my mother's womb, I came out of my mother's womb because I, of this, sick, this sin thing. Then you can't hold Jeremiah and that idea in, you can't hold them both because they're incongruent. Oh, well, no, God really does love you, but he just doesn't. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. But we've concocted this whole theology that makes it make sense, kind of, until you start asking questions. And then the whole thing begins to fall apart. And that's why most teachers and leaders won't answer those questions. They won't even engage in those dialogues. Besides throwing out a half a verse here and a half a verse here. The priests understand it. Thank you. I'm getting to that. You're always ahead of me, Chris. Dang it. <laughs> to be to say that God wants us wants to restore us to to real humanity almost sounds like a, a sacrilege from some of the places that I've been. No, God God humanity is is messed up. We we should want to be like divinity. No, but we we already are divine in a sense we wear the image of we're in the image of god we have a spark of divinity already in us every single living soul does that's why we're living that's what nefesh is it's it's the spark of the divine so this whole offering thing why animals maybe it's because when when the israelites brought an animal to Hashem inside of them there's a deep and, and it's, a, it's a violent it's a uh, it's, it's meant to be shocking the temple services and sacrifices and tabernacle are meant to be shocking they're meant to be abhorrent because when we let the animal nature of us the animal side of us let me help this if somebody's having trouble with this I'm talking about animal nature and divine spark Paul said spirit and flesh right does that make you feel a little more comfortable because this is what Paul was talking about he was talking about spirit and flesh my spirit wants to but my flesh is unwilling right the spark the God side of me the divinity side of me wants to do but the animalistic side is it doesn't want to it's it's what Paul was talking about so if that helps you think about it in those terms and think I'm not crazy then think about it in those terms that's fine because Paul got this when the animals were brought as an offering, they were brought to draw near to God. Why could God, if God needed blood, if God was full of bloodlust so much, why then could in Isaiah he say, "Stop bringing these offerings"? Who told you to bring these offerings? Your your new moon celebrations, you know, they make me they make me want to vomit. What was God asking for? 
a change in their heart, a change in their nature, a change away from their animalistic tendencies, which were becoming idolatrous and unlike the, all the other pagan nations around them. And he was calling, calling them back to Shuvah to change their heart and to be in his image. True humanity. One that loves and cares for each other, that partners with God and that spreads godly, uh, godly characteristics in out, throughout the earth. So we draw near by looking at that animal and saying that animal represents an animalistic part of me. And it's meant to be volatile and violent. It's supposed to be. So the whole, the whole sacrificial system and not only, not, only, not only have Christians thought about it that way, if you read Jewish commentary, it's sacrifices, 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 sacrifices. Even in, in, uh, in Midrash and in Mishnah, it's sacrifices, sacrifices, sacrifices. But can I just maybe ask you to consider that even Jewish commentary that talks about sacrifices has been influenced by Western theology? And if any of you haven't seen it yet, I know most of our Bible study group has, do yourself a favor, go on YouTube, look up the Temple Institute Vaikra. The Temple Institute Vaikra is 25 minutes, 27 minutes, something like that. Listen to Rabbi Heim Richmond talk about this. He's going to say everything I just said. I said it before. I didn't say it before him. I said it before I listened to him. So, but he's going to say it and say it better. This understanding, guys, has to change. It has to change. Because if everything was based on sacrifices, then we get to Yeshua. Then we have a lot of problems. We have a lot of problems with Yeshua and what we believe and know that he did if Yeshua is a sacrifice. Number one, what is God's view of humanity if Yeshua is a sacrifice? Think, don't check out. Think critically about this. What is God's view of humanity if Yeshua is a sacrifice? It is the, it is the most violent case of cosmic child abuse ever. Because God hates human sin so much that, that thousands and tens of thousands of animals dying was not enough to soothe God's anger that he finally just had to kill his son. And I saw this written yesterday. And people boasting about how God, the, the beauty of a cross, the actual symbol, the beauty, because it reminds us that God loved us so much that he killed his son for us. That breaks my heart. It used to make me angry. Now it just breaks my heart. Because that's not a God I want to serve. And I'm not ashamed in saying it. If Yeshua is a sacrifice, then how much does God hate humanity to kill his own son? If Yeshua is a sacrifice, does God take human sacrifice? You read the rest of the scripture, absolutely not. God forbids human sacrifice because those are the things that the pagans did. How pagan are we? Straight pagan. What about if Yeshua died to set us free from sin, why do we still sin? 
Come on, like nobody's ever asked these questions? No, you've all asked these questions. Just nobody would entertain them, so you just stuff them. Well, I'm not stuffing them. I can't. If I'm going to give my life to this message and to this God and to this Bible, I can't stuff these questions. What about... What type of sacrifice was Jesus? Because see, there's five main types in Vaikra in the opening chapters. And brilliantly enough, the writers of Vaikra, Moshe or whoever you think it is, said chapter one is going to be about one type of offering. Chapter two is going to be about another type. Chapter three is going to be, and they laid it out really nice and clean for us. So you have the Olah, the whole burnt offering. Is Yeshua the Olah? Well, he wasn't burned. And he wasn't offering on, offered on an altar. Oh, yeah, well, it's just metaphorical. Okay, well, then we can make anything mean anything, right? Now, in a sense, Yeshua was that Ola offering because he gave everything, right? So, yeah, I'm, I don't have a problem with that. When we talk about sacrifice and giving up, was he, uh, was he uh, the next one is um, uh, Mincha? Was he a Mincha offering? Well, that has to deal with um, grain and stuff. The next one is Shlamim, peace offering. Oh, that one's awesome. Yeah. Um, but still, that's burning an altar and stuff. Um, and then a Chatat in chapter 4, a sin offering. Oh, that has to be the one he was. Well, read about the Chatat and then ask yourself if that's the one Yeshua was. The last one is the Asham, the guilt offering. Well, that could be it too, but there's some problems with that too. So which sacrifice was he? Well, he was the Passover sacrifice, which is not like any other sacrifice or, or not, not altogether like any other sacrifice. Can I just cut to the chase and say that none of those work? None of those work. And I know what most of you are thinking, if not in here online, you have that voice in the back of your head going, but Paul said... Kyle and I are going to talk about this. If I'll ever shut up, Kyle and I will talk about this in a little bit. But do you know that the Gospels don't see Yeshua as a sacrifice? The Gospels don't. John does, maybe a little bit. But John's got his own thing going on. Not his own thing. He's just got a unique look at it. But the, the Gospels don't even see Yeshua as an offering, as a sacrifice. It's not until we get to Paul who says that Yeshua was a a sacrifice once for all, right? Can I tell you that Jesus wasn't a sacrifice? It doesn't work. What I can tell you that he was was a korban. Because what does a korban do? Why do most of us, not most of us, why every single person in here and probably every single person watching online, why do you follow the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Why? Because you found a man named Yeshua, named Jesus. And what did he do? He drew you near to the God of creation. There's no way you would have any access or knowledge or closeness to Hashem if it wasn't for our Messiah, who because of, yes, his death, but more so because of his life. Can I say that? Hello? And more so because of his resurrection, drew us near and continues every day, every moment of the day to draw us near. 
if we think about Yeshua as this constant sacrifice, being sacrificed over and over and over and over, that's terrible. That's, but that's how a lot of people live. If you don't, you don't understand it, I'm sorry, but I'm just trying to bring some healing to those of us that need it. But Yeshua is that offering that continues to draw us near to Hashem. And you know, I had two, I had two conversations in the last couple of weeks with Orthodox Jews and talking about Messiah and talking about Yeshua and where before we've had kind of arguments and not arguments, but you know, just disagreements because that's the way it works. When I finally started talking about Yeshua as a korban, just simply one who draws us near, and I said, that's why he's my Messiah because he drew me near to your God, to the God of Israel. And you know that both peoples went like, oh, okay. It makes perfect sense. You see, when we, when we talk to a Jewish person about him being a sacrifice, they immediately go, whoa, 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 whoa. No, that doesn't make any sense. Because it doesn't. It's not because they don't have the revelation. It's because, no, it really doesn't make any sense. He is the one that draws us near. He is our korban. So as we go through Vayikra and reading the Parshot, I want to encourage you. Don't just turn the page and just go, yeah, I get it. It's about the sacrifices. I want to ask you to lean into the book of Vayikra this year because everything from the book of Vayikra is based off of this. It's based off of God. Hashem is calling you to closeness. And you get close to Hashem through the book of Leviticus. I said this Wednesday night, Kyle amended it. I said, don't even read Paul without understanding Leviticus. You can't. You can't do it. Can't do it. Stop. Do not pass. Go. Do not collect $200. Don't even approach Paul till you understand Leviticus. Now I'm talking about have read through it. Now I'm talking about have skinned the subtitles. You understand Leviticus. And then Kyle said, I, can, I wouldn't even say you can't read the Gospels without understanding Leviticus. It's like touche. Because of all the temple language, all the, because everything is based around this. Everything is based around this. So, I don't, I, don't want to, I don't want to hear the sacrifice language. I'm sorry. I'm not really usually belligerent on stuff like that, dogmatic. I don't want to hear it because it's not helpful, and I don't believe it's accurate. Because we don't have a, a, a masochistic God. We have a God of love that wants us to draw near. And you know what? In the same way Yeshua said, go and do like I do. He talked about laying down your life for your brother, right? That's not a sacrifice. That's an offering. And we're told to be a living offering. Yeah, we're told to be a living. Present your bodies as living offerings. Well, if you're presenting your body as a living sacrifice, see how much that sucks, that kind of lifestyle? How many, yeah, it's impossible. How many people want to, we say we want to do that. We don't want to do that. Nobody wants to do that. Let's be honest. And it, very good point. Roy said it's focused on death. Is our God the God of death? He's the God of? If you live your life as a living offering, a korban, what are you doing? You're drawing people near. Everywhere you go, you're drawing people near. Come on. That is being the image of Messiah. That is spreading kingdom in your world. I hope this is healing for somebody. I got a lot more on this, but I promised Kyle I'd let him get, we'd, we'd talk about Matthew a little bit and approaching Passover. So 
He's been very patient. No, um, but this is important because we can't touch on uh, the Last Supper and the crucifixion and the resurrection unless we have cleared the air on this. And, and I'm just going to say, because I know that it's someone's thinking it somewhere, um, the issue is the propitiation for our sins, right? Um, however, the word propitiation means appeasement. Absolute poor translation. If Because, see, that, that's the same mentality. That Yeshua was killed to appease an angry God. And I just don't believe that. That word can mean an offering, an atoning offering. It's one of those words that's better translated with two words. But it's that weird, reformed, angry God thing. And uh, so I just thought I would address... That and, right and I know this. Some of you are, are are sitting here, you're watching, and if you haven't turned off altogether because you think we've gone off the deep end, and now we're universalists. Um, if you're sitting there and you're struggling with this, it's okay. Let it simmer. Let it let it sit with you a little bit. Um, God's not mad at you. And some of you have never sat in a religious meeting and ever heard that. God's not mad at you. That that should be breaking some chains off of somebody right now. I need. I know. That. I know. I know it has to be. Right. Because I've sat where you sit. God's not mad at you. He's not. How many of you parents just sit in your recliner on your couch and just think? Those dirtgum kids. Of your own kids. I can't stand them. Wait, that's not what happens? <laughs> <laughs> no, what do you what do you do? You sit and you think, how can I how can I be closer to my kids? See, we I'm sorry. It's okay. I, <laughs> I understand. <laughs> I can't. I can't. This is too important. Here, here's the thing about all this. We as hum, just human beings, right? Just you and me sitting here having a conversation. Nobody else is listening. We understand how God relates to us. Intrinsically, we understand. We are taught by religion, no, 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 no. That's not how it works. How you treat your own kids is not how God looks at you. You see the difference? We're taught that as parents, all we want to do is draw nearer to our kids. That's all we want. We want to be close whatever, at whatever cost. Are there some things our kids do that make us want to pull our hair out? A big hearty amen. Do we do some things that make God want to pull his hair out? Yes, but God's not mad at you. God's not sitting on the throne tapping his fingers going, oh, I can't wait. I can't wait to let him. Do you get home? Is all you think about at work is all you think about is, I can't wait to get home so I can whip some tail. On an average day, unless you're a teacher, then you're thinking that at work. No, but none of us think that way. Because we love our children. We're compassionate towards our children. We want to be close to our children. So why then do we take our brains out of our heads and go, oh yeah, but that's how God thinks about us. No! No, God doesn't think about ways to punish us. God thinks about ways to, to draw near to us. Do we, do we have sin and stuff that 
makes God go like, oh man, I wish you would have done that. Yes. Yes. Just like our kids do. This, we, we've got to fundamentally change this. We, we have got to. And if you're already there, help the rest of us wounded and, and, and desperate people as we come along into healing and the understanding because we've been messed up. So if you're already on the other side going like, yeah, I don't know what you're talking about. I've never heard any of this before. Then help us. Help some of us that need to be brought along. Right? What's that? Yes, it's got to be a... Con- we've been brainwashed. We need to be brain unwashed. We need that constant message. Yeah, deprogrammed. Yeah, all right. I think I'm done. Okay. We'll see. It's okay. No, I mean, all of that was necessary, you know? Um, and, again, I just, I just want to be clear. What I'm not saying is that God likes sin. No. That's not what you're saying. No, not at all. Right? I think that that would be helpful to say. However... God has set up the system, for lack of a better word, for us to be able to repent and draw near again. Yes. So, And the fact that you are sensitive to your sin proves that you're in covenant. Right. That you're in the image of God. Right. It proves oh, you're in the no. right direction. Like, you're conscious. You have a sin conscious. That it proves that you're good. Like, relax. You know? But even, me, for, even for me to say the words, you know, I'm good, like, in my background, understand a lot of baggage. It it's almost like you can't say that. There's none good but God. Not even you, you old wretch. You know, amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a. All right. Okay, so we're gonna um, we're gonna as fast as I possibly can talk about. If I can do math, we're gonna talk about four chapters. Okay, so. Buckle up. <laughs> Buckle up, buttercup. Because um, I want to get us on the road to Jerusalem. And I want to start to unpack uh, a theology of the crucifixion and resurrection. Okay. Y'all, listen. Oof, you don't even know. You so, don't even know what's coming. Okay. So, all right. What happens in... We, we did chapter 15. We talked about hand washing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, all fine and good. I, I feel whew, I feel comfortable to leave that all behind now. <laughs> got it got it all out, all that all that pent up emotion. Uh and so now let's move on to the Canaanite woman. So what happens? I just have to address this because I saw um this week I have to continue to talk to my Gen Z folks. Like they said that like Jesus was racist and misogynistic because of this passage. That was on the news, wasn't it? Like, it was on was the news. Thing. It, it yeah. made the news. So yeah. I just have to address it. Stop being dumb. <laughs> um, and if you want to, if you want to talk on on TV and sound smart, learn some history and context. <laughs> okay. Wait, it's not based on what I feel. No. Okay. So, so the the gist of what's going on here is he's actually doing the exact opposite of racism and misogyny. This is a Canaanite woman, a non-Israelite, that approaches him. And his disciples are the ones that are like, get her away, get, get her away. And he asks her a question, just like he asked the centurion a question in chapter 8. He says, should I come and do it? Because my mission is for the house of Israel, right? But where the, the racism thing comes in is he says, you know, it's not good for me to, to feed the children's food to the dogs, right? Because dogs is a word for Gentile in the Tanakh. Hold on. 
The word used here actually comes from Greek literature. Remember, the New Testament is written in Greek. It comes from Greek literature. This is one of those fun, cute words that Greek poets like to use. It means pup. It means cute little lap dog. It doesn't mean old, dirty, scavenging, <laughs> nasty, tear-apart, rabies-ridden. It doesn't mean that. And what's, what's interesting here is it's Yeshua's disciples that are having the problem. Get her away. She's not, she's not one of us. She's, she's you know, but he's the one that says, like, no. He, he invites the banter. Do you understand? He invites the banter between the two of them. Mm-hmm. He's the one that says, like, you know, it's not right for me to give you food. And we can learn a lesson from her as non-Jews, as Canaanites. If I can only get the, the crumbs from the master's table. Yeah. If, if, and see, what Yeshua saw in her is, is exactly what he says elsewhere. He saw that she could be faithful with a little bit. Oh, that's good. And then he gave her a lot. He said, woman, which is, which is a, a term of respect, like saying ma'am in the South. He said, oh, woman, your faith is great. May it be done as you've asked. She, she, she didn't have this attitude where like, well, if I can't have it all, then I don't want no part of it. That, no, and I think he's delighted whenever she throws it back on. And that's goes, the, the oddness know? of it. Because, we, again, like, we have to be careful because most of us come from a replacement theology type of background, right? We're like, well, if I can't be God's number one in the apple of his eye, then I don't want any part of it. And, like, what if... I don't want to use the term second-class citizen because I don't think that's true. But what if we're not on the same plane as Israel? Like, what if they have a special job that we don't have? I'm just asking. What if they have a special job that we don't have? Can you still serve God and be okay with that? What if they have a... Because with every job comes responsibility. They also have responsibilities that you and I don't have. Can we be okay with that? And especially even in the Torah movement, we really struggle with that idea. And I'm not saying that's the way it is. I'm just giving you food for thought. Even though I kind of think that's the way it is. Right. Well, I mean, we'll, we'll touch on that sort of mentality of like, you know, I, I got to have it all. Yeah. Right? And I love her, her. I never thought about the being faithful with a little. Like that's Yeah. And that's awesome. th- like, honestly, so like this idea that, you know, he's being mean to her. No, I think he loved it. Yeah. She threw it back. She, she threw it back to him. And, and I believe that with, an, with a, a belly laugh and a grin, he says, oh, woman, your faith is great. Yeah. You know, he, he, he loved it. He loved the he, – he invited this whole situation in the presence of his disciples and said, right. this is how we treat women and this is how we treat non-Jews. Yeah. Okay? That's good. So he goes on and he heals, he, he heals others. He feeds the 4,000. It's not that much different from the feeding of the 5,000. I will say that – if you should be seeing here some uh, foreshadowing of the Last Supper, right? And it's still this Moses figure, this, this, this prophet like Moses feeding the people in the wilderness, okay? Mm-hmm. So moving right along, chapter 16, they demand a sign. He says, I will give you one sign, but the sign of Jonah, okay? Remember, that's about the resurrection. Going to be so important here in just a minute. The resurrection is a sign, okay? Uh. He says, uh, he talks about the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And and get this, like, again, I'm just going to really harp on this. His disciples still just don't get it. And we think we do, right? And then, then, like, use the Bible as a weapon against people who don't really get it either. (laughs) The people closest to him didn't get it, (laughs) okay? So they're like, well, we didn't bring bread. And he's like, well, haven't you seen me, like, literally 
make bread like from nothing. Uh, you, okay, anyway, you guys get the point. Okay, Peter's confession. Uh, this is actually something that uh, I read every day now. But, uh, but, but look, I, I want to I really zoom in and, and talk about something. So, so he says, who, is, who, who do you say that I am? Right? It's that million-dollar question. And Peter says, you're the Messiah, the son of the living God. Let me not have a wreck here. Okay. And then he goes on to tell him that it wasn't flesh and blood that revealed this to him, but his father in heaven. Right? And he says, I'll give you the keys to the kingdom. And whenever you bind is bound. And whenever you loose is loose. And I want to point this out because it's going to become very important. I'm going to make this all come together. I promise. (laughs) He uses the, the verb, the Greek verb, luo. It's actually the first Greek verb I ever learned. All right. Ours too. And it means, uh, it means to, to loosen or um, to set free. Okay, so uh, he says whatever you, you loosen or set free is set free. Okay, you guys get it. I'm going to kind of table this for a minute and come back to it because I'm going to hurt some of our church hating feelings. Uh, maybe not necessarily people in this room, but you get it. Okay, so, uh, all right. So for the first time, he predicts his, his death, right? And Peter rebukes him and says, no, Lord, no, no, no. Th- this can't happen to you. And he tells him, get behind me, Satan. Get behind me, my, you're my opponent, right? But I just want to point something out, because again, this is all going to be very important here in just a minute. What's the part that Peter didn't seem to get? I'm going to be raised again on the third day, right? That's the part that he misses. Yes, he, of course he doesn't get it that the Messiah is going to go die. That's not, a, that's not a concept that Peter has. But he's grieved and upset because he missed the point, which is that he's going to live again. Then Yeshua is transfigured. right? And it doesn't get more Moses and more Exodus than this scene. Chapter 17. This is chapter 17. I'm moving right along. <laughs> okay? <laughs> and uh, I really wish that... I could take more time, but I, there's, there's things that we need to talk about. Okay. But um, look, he, he's transfigured and he, and he shines like, like Moses did, right? It, the, the glory of God is shown through him, and Moses and Elijah are there with him. You know, two of the most important prophets in, in Israel's history, and also two that are associated with what? The Exodus. Okay? Matthew's saying. Hi, reader, a new exodus is on the way. See, Luke actually makes it apparent. He says that this happened before he went to Jerusalem to accomplish an exodus. He uses the word exodus, Luke does. But Matthew's being a bit more, he's, he's expecting you to know your text, to know your Bible. Uh, the disciples fail to heal these people. And this sounds so mean, right? Like, this, like there are times in the gospel where you go like, what is like what is going on like this doesn't seem like the issue I've been reading where he goes like you know you 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 perverse generation and they're, they're just like whoa man we're just trying to get healed <laughs> like like you're doing it for everybody else like <laughs> you know 
but, but no, look. Look what happened. First of all, he, he just got upset with his disciples in chapter 16 because they're, they're living with him every day and they, he, can't, he can't get it through their head. It, and he's already told them to go and heal and do the things that he's done. And, and here they're having trouble doing it. Hello, Kyle? I'll insert my name there. Okay? And, and there was already a crowd gathered. So Yeshua speaks to this crowd. Like, why are you all coming to me? Why are you all coming to me? Can none of you, none of you, none of you have, are, are right enough with God or, or, or clean enough, however you would want to quantify that, to do what's right and heal this man, much less my disciples? And then he, t- then he tells him, if only you had the faith of a mustard seed, you'd move a mountain, right? Which, oh Lord, and the prosperity gospel just gets... Woo, that's right. But no, no, no. Look, let's zoom in. What he's saying is, because in their world, mountains had roots, deep roots. So to Jewish teachers, this is not original to Yeshua, Jewish teachers use this illustration to make a point that it's impossible to move a mountain. And the, the statement Yeshua is making is that um, if you move a mountain and you can't cast out a demon in my name, then like you, you, you've only scratched the surface, right? And we look at it as like, oh no, we have to move mountains. No, you've only scratched the surface if you move a mountain. That's the point. He predicts his death again here in chapter 17. And uh, look what he says. The son of man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. It's a very wide scope. Right, I'm just trying to I'm just trying to stamp out the last bits of anti-Semitism in 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 Christianity here. It's a wide scope. He's handed over into the hands of men, not just Jews. Men, humanity does their worst to him. It, just as a just based on my earlier rant, it's not the hands of God either. Right. So to think like, well, God killed his son. No, he says the hands of men, and he's he's doing all of this willingly. Yeah, yeah it's a willing. Is, yeah, it's right. a willing a willing thing. Um, he pays the temple tax. See, question about the greatest. Uh, ooh, here we go. So his disciples come and say, "Who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom?" Right, and they get they get kind of they get they get mad at each other. Uh, but then he brings up a kid. Right, isn't am I in the right place? Yeah, 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 yeah. He brings up a child, and he says, whoever's like this one is the greatest in the kingdom. Why? Because children have no, they have no preconceived notions, right? Whenever you teach a child, they, they're, they're only willing to learn because they don't have all of this other, not, he says, you have, to go, you have to make yourself like that. Learn again. Be humble. And children have that, Children have that loyalty. And that hope and that innocence. Yeah. And loyalty and hope. You know, when the Bible talks about love, really, I wish I could go through my Bible everywhere and scratch out the word love and above it write loyalty. Because that's really how probably it should have been translated. Loyalty. Love, we don't know what it means. We know what loyalty means. We know what disloyalty means. But children have a loyalty. You tell them they could go ahead and swim in that pond. Well, they, yeah, they're going to... Woohoo! <laughs> They're gonna. They're just easily led. They'll trust you. Yeah, they'll yeah. trust you. How easily led are we by Messiah? Are do we? Are we like the donkey with the, you know, the hooves in the ground? 
because we just don't trust. Uh, there's a lot that I really do want to talk about, but I want to go ahead and jump over here. Peter says, this, I'm still in chapter 18 here. This is verse uh, 17. Then Peter came to him and said, Lord, how many times must I forgive my brother who sins against me? Okay, who sins against me? Uh, as many as seven times? And Yeshua said to him, not seven times, I tell you, but 77 times. And if you recall, in Genesis, there was this man named uh, Lamech, which his name is the word king, but jumbled up. And he was violent and treacherous, and he was the first one to take multiple wives. Do you see this is empire? This is a wrong king. And he said, oh, if Cain is avenged seven times, may Lamech be avenged 70 times seven, 77 times. Right? So it's Yeshua... He said, what he's saying is empire and forgiveness and, and the kingdom of heaven, they, it doesn't, right. they're, they're at odds, right? So it's this reverse of this, this, this treachery. I don't really know how else to say it. This, this violence and this retribution principle that Lamech had established in the beginning. But then look what he does. He tells a parable. Right? And it's a parable of the uh, unforgiving servant. I'm sure you're familiar with it. So basically, a servant owes his master money. The master forgives his loan. But then someone owns the, owes the servant money, and he is not forgiving. And so then his punishment is great. Right? So I, I'm just going to write this to get it in your head. This is the first parable Yeshua has told about sin. What does it involve? And the word that Peter asks him, he says, uh, how, how many times should I forgive? It's the word aphasis, which means release, like from a bond. It's the word that's used in the Septuagint for yovel or shemitah, the, the jubilee or the freeing of, of, of slaves, of bonds, right, of debt. It's going to be important. You guys still with me? Is it okay? Okay, so let's see. Uh, look here. So <laughs> the, the children come to Yeshua, and this is further proof. See, I, I'm really going to hammer this home because I want us to stop reading the Bible as a weapon against people. That's why I keep on like making these general statements and saying that like we point fingers at the Jews or at the church, and we do. I don't think it's just generalization, but like that's if that's what you read your Bible for, really really check yourself and see if that's what you're doing then you're doing it wrong okay but look I, I'm going to hammer this home one last time his he just told his disciples if you want to be great in the kingdom you have to be like these children and then the children come to him here in chapter 19 and the disciples go get away they don't get it the ones closest to him didn't get it we need to stop pretending like we're the only ones that have it right because we're on Yeshua's side when we read the gospels and we get it and they don't no <laughs> no that Matthew is being intentional here in the way that he tells this story to let you know that even the closest ones had hang-ups. Okay? Uh, the rich young man comes, uh, and he says, if you want to be... He said, first of all, the young man asks about eternal life, and he says, keep the commandments. So eternal life and commandments, you wrestle with that. 
Um, then, uh, then he says, if you want to be perfect, sell everything that you own and follow me. Right? It's this, it's this same idea I touched on it a bit last week. Why does he talk about these treasures in heaven and, and generosity? Because generosity can't be measured. It has no value. It has, it has unlimited value. So what he's saying is, keeping it here, it's, it's limited. But whenever you give it away to someone who doesn't have, the storeroom you have with our Father, has, it's just invaluable. There's no room to store it up. He was big on generosity. Chapter 20, the, the workers in the vineyard, which in my opinion, it's really weird that it's placed here. I think that this could have been a good section to have in chapter 13. This, this, you know, this parable of the kingdom. And uh, this is after his disciples. Uh, was it? It's the, it's the sons of thunder, right? They, they're... <laughs> I might, I might have it all mixed up here. Let's see. No, 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 no. Uh, okay, no, they ask, uh, they, they say like, Lord, we, we've, we're not like the rich young ruler. Uh, we've abandoned everything to come follow you. So what will we get? So then he tells this parable about the workers in the vineyard. And the ones who were hired first are paid the same wage as the ones who were hired much later. That parable makes me mad. It, yeah. It triggers me. It should. Yeah, right. <laughs> That's should. the point. Yeah. Thanks, yeah. Right. Uh, I mean... There are times where I've definitely, there was a time where it bothered me more. Uh, it still does frustrate me, but, uh, okay. Um, he, in chapter 20, he predicts his death for uh, the third time. Look, we're going up to Jerusalem. This is verse 18. Uh, and the Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priests and the experts in the law. They will condemn him to death and will turn him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged severely and crucified. Yet on the third day he will be raised. Right? So uh, then in, he, he uh, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, okay, no, so that, that is the third time. Okay, good. We're going to stop here. I know, that, I know that I miss a lot, and you guys are probably like, oh, but he didn't talk about this. Um, but like I said, given the conversation we had this morning about Leviticus, I want to talk about some other things that I think are pressing and important that um, have to do with the Passover, the, the, the Passover meal that Yeshua ate with his disciples that we call the Last Supper, and, um, and the crucifixion and resurrection. So first things first. I want to talk about uh, let's see is this uh, yeah I'll do it alright I just have the wrong reference I believe okay so in, in, in Matthew Yeshua makes the claim that he's going to offer himself up as a uh, or he's going to go and die as a redemption for many right? as a redemption for many uh, it's part of one of those predictions, and I have the wrong uh, reference down, and I want to try to get through this. So I want to talk about redemption and sin, okay? Because if we're going to understand what Matthew is getting at through telling Yeshua's story, we have to understand sin and redemption the way Matthew understood sin and redemption. Why? Remember, the Bible was written for us, but not to us. And if we want to understand it, we have to try to, we have to try to, take off our western 
Protestant lenses and put on the, the Matthew Jew lenses, first century. Okay? So, here's the deal. In, in the Bible, there are four primary metaphors for sin. Okay? Four primary metaphors for sin. Uh, a burden. Right? Think Exodus and Leviticus. You will bear the guilt of your sin. Or think of the scapegoat. Right? It bears the sin of the people into the wilderness. And then there's this uh, concept of it being a stain. Like something that gets on you that you can't, right? And, and think of the, the temple vestments, right? And the blood cleansing the stain, right? Of impurity. Um, then it's described as a path, right? As in like going astray, right? That's a common metaphor for, for sin. But by the first century in Yeshua's day, sin was primarily thought of as a debt, or a bond. Okay? Let's think about this. Our Father who is in heaven, holy is your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive those who are indebted to us. Lead us not into temptation, deliver us from evil. Okay. So it's conceived of as a as a bond incurred against God, right? That, that has to be paid back is, is essentially how they thought about it. And look, Peter, Peter uses, he uses a, whenever they talk about sin, whenever they talk about sin, it's always like whenever they talk about redemption or releasing or forgiving, that word is always tied somehow to slavery, debt, or bondage, or, or payment of some kind. Right? Peter says, uh, how, how many times should I, should I release a brother when he sins against me? Right? So, Which, just as a minor thing, that forgiveness as release is huge. Huge. Yeah, that, just the way we think about it. Like, we think about, oh, forgive, that means, what does that mean when I forgive somebody? If you really forgive somebody, you release them. And release yourself from whatever that offense that happened. Right. And then look at the parable he told. The parable is all about owing money and being in debt. Right? right? This, is, this is sin 101 in the first century. If you pull a dictionary off the wall, not that there was a, a shelf like that or books, uh, and looked up the word sin in first century Aramaic or Hebrew, you wouldn't find the, the common words that we think of. You would see all this talk about being in debt. Okay, that, that's how they did it. And I know it's weird because I'm talking about sin as a metaphor, but metaphors are how we talk. Okay? Because w- what metaphors allow you to do is take something really complicated and ground it in your everyday life and culture so that way you and the people around you can understand it better. Think of it like that's a slippery slope. Like, oh, he did that, and now it's just a slippery slope to whatever's next. What do right. we mean? Uh, yeah, it's, it's only going to get worse. Mm-hmm path right yeah. but we're, we, we use this this simple vivid word picture to to describe like someone descending a slope because that invokes like it's going to be bad what whatever comes next or the black sheep of the family right this is all metaphor that we use every day and it and it and it, it, it describes a greater truth that's better expressed through a picture right because if i just say sin look pop quiz if I say sin, you're going to have a hard time explaining it right now to me without using a metaphor. 
so just in case that, that bothers anyone, and, and the Bible is rife with metaphors that we, that we just look over. I'd never even thought that like this idea of going astray, that's, that's, sin meta, that's a metaphor. Look, man, we need to, we need to learn history and literature <laughs> alongside our Bible, okay? So, all right. I've said all that to say the, the word used for, for redemption is a word... I'm trying to do better with my handwriting. It's Lutron. Lutron, it's related to this word luo, to loosen or to set free. Okay? And it means to like it means to like re- release. Okay? But what's interesting about this word is it's it's most common use in the Greek Old Testament is for three very specific Hebrew words. Okay? I'm going to try to write them down, and I'm going to try to go as slow as possible. And, and honestly, if somebody needs me to re-explain it or slow down, please tell me, because this is so important. Okay, so it's used for the word. Here, I'm going to clean the board. Does everybody have this? Yep. Yeah. So, so look, <laughs> if, if, this, if this sin language and to, to loosen or release is, is, how, is how they talked about sin... This is what I meant by I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hurt, hurt our church hurting feelings. Whenever the Catholics believe that they inherited their apostolic authority through Peter, who has the ability to release or bind, they didn't pull it out of thin air, guys. They got it from the Bible. Doesn't mean you have to agree with their interpretation, but mutual respect. Don't read the Bible as a weapon. You can disagree and not be a jerk. That's good. That's good. Okay. Some of you can. Others, you struggle with it. <laughs> so, okay, let's I didn't see. call your name out. I was just... So it's used for this word, kofair. Kofair. Which should, which should remind us of what? Kippurim. Yom Kippur. Right? And it, and it means to cover. As do most of the derivatives of kof, fe, resh. They, they mean to cover, or it can even mean to wipe away in certain instances of the, of the verb. Um, but this is used in a passage in, uh, I should have probably put them up here, but it's okay. Please forgive me. Um, Exodus 21. Exodus 21. And it's verse 29 through 30. I'm not going to read it, but whenever I talk about it, you'll understand. It's, uh, it's the case of an, an ox that should have been pinned up because it has this recurring problem of goring people. Whenever it gores someone in your family, you're supposed to, you're, you can either seek the death penalty or seek a kofair, a, a covering of the debt. Okay? So that's, that's one way it's used. I'm excited. <laughs> I, I bet nobody else cares, but I really do. Okay, I like, oh, I can't even explain it. All right, let's see. The next one is Goel, which some of you might know, which is what? That's the kinsman redeemer. Do I write like a professor yet? Okay. <laughs> um, 
So a kinsman redeemer, which can do what? He can avenge the blood of a fallen family member and release their blood. That's the concept. Or what can the kinsman redeemer do? Release someone from their slavery, their bondage. Because how do you get into slavery in, in their worldview? You, come, you fall into debt one way or another. Whether Either it's because you took a life that you shouldn't have or you literally can't pay your bills. Okay? So it's also the release from slavery or the giving back of things that once belonged to you. That's good. Right? The, the property, possessions, right? And the third way is for this word, pidion. Okay? Pidion. And some of you may, may be familiar with this. This is like the, this is like the payment of the, the firstborn, right? So uh, the, the emphasis on the pedion is not so like for the kinsman redeemer and for the co-fair, it's, it's parties that are directly involved, right? And the emphasis on the, that, that's who has to pay, okay? Parties that, pedion, the, the emphasis is just put on payment. Somebody just has to do it. Doesn't matter, okay? And it's and the object of a pedion is never an inanimate object. It's always a an animal or a person. Remember, you have to redeem your firstborn donkey. You got to redeem your firstborn son. Okay, that's the pedion. It's the uh, I'll I'll put like redemption price. Okay. But how is this word pidion in the Hebrew Bible, how is it used most overwhelmingly? It's with the Exodus. Now, God does call himself the Goel of Israel, which is to say that I'm your redeemer, so know that you will be redeemed. There's, because there's n- nobody else can say that their God is Goel. Okay? But whenever Hashem repeatedly says, I am the one who redeemed you from the house of Israel, from the house of, from the house of Egypt, rather, the house of bondage. He's using that word, pada. He's using some form of that verb to pada, to make a redemption prize. He's the one who redeemed them from. So it's Exodus, Exodus language. It's freedom. This is all freedom language, debt and freedom. Okay, so. At this point, hopefully all of your bells and whistles are going off, <laughs> okay? And, and so if sin, if sin is like a debt, okay, and its wages are what? Death. How do you destroy sin? With life. Okay? With life. So, what what's going on here? Matthew is the most brilliant. I'm so glad he wrote a gospel. I love the other ones, but I, I love Matthew. Okay? Because he set us up from the opening chapters to really get this. Yeshua is a new Moses. I'm about to blow your mind with some data that uh, some of it I didn't have and some of it I just didn't have time. But, but, but look, I, I just really want you, your minds to be blown. So in the first couple chapters, uh, I talked about how in Jewish tradition, 
An angel appeared to Moses' father to announce that a redeemer would be born, and also appeared, or uh, Pharaoh's uh, lackeys, for back of a better term, magicians. They had a they had a dream that a redeemer was going to be born. So there's this this dual dream thing, and that's what happens in Matthew, right? Uh, so he goes on to teach the Torah in chapter five on a mountain, right? And beforehand, he calls his first disciples, and Moses appointed rulers just before Sinai. Uh, then he's shown in chapter 11 to have this, cro- this close reciprocal knowledge of God, like Moses, who spoke face-to-face with God. And he sends his disciple out into the wilderness like Moses sent out spies, <laughs> or, or out, into the, out into the nation, right, to, to spy out the land. And, it, and all that talk there is military talk. Go back and reread Matthew 11. It's really interesting. He feeds people with, with bread in the wilderness, and he's transfigured. And, and he's always coming at odds with these Pharisees, right? These Pharisees challenge his authority, and Korah and his friends challenge Moses' authority. And Yeshua condemns this generation, and the Exodus generation never saw the promised land. So for, oh, and not to mention that the whole book is structured with around five major discourses, and there are five books in the Torah. Right. For Matthew, Yeshua is the prophet that came after Moses. He's the redeemer figure that is going to perform an exodus. And what was the exodus about? Bondage. Slavery. Okay? But it gets better. Because, see, that, that thread of him being a new Moses was just for another thread to run literally under it, which is that Yeshua is, his story embodies Israel's story. Remember, we talked about in chapter 1, this is the book of the Genesis of Yeshua Messiah. Okay? Well, that formulation, not only are there genealogies all over the Torah, specifically in Genesis, but, but that, that wording is exactly what Genesis 2 says. This is a book of the genealogy or Genesis or the account of the heavens and the earth. When chapter 2 starts, oh, so it's the story's being retold, the story. God's up to the same things that he was up to today. So, uh, then Matthew quotes from Hosea, Right? And, uh, and says that out of Egypt I called my son. Right? That's about Israel. And the Exodus, Israel is God's firstborn son. Right? That's how the Bible talks about them. Oh, and did I mention that... Um, so there's a miraculous birth. Right? So think like Isaac and Jacob. Their, their mothers were barren. Right? So it, it calls all this imagery. To, whenever God does a miraculous birth in Israel's history, it's serious. Something serious is about to happen. Right? And, and, oh, and who, it was a dreamer named Joseph. Right? And I know that that seems kind of like, oh, you might be stretching it. Look, man, I, I looked into this and, and read a lot of people, and even if they don't really agree, they can't ignore it. So do with that what you want. Um, so, you know, he passes through the, the waters, almost like the Red Sea. He, he wanders in the wilderness. Then we get to the Sermon on the Mount, and not only does it recall this Sinai imagery, but there's all this talk of prosperity or calamity. And life or death. 
right? Uh, then Yeshua tells these parables, which not only brings to mind the prophets, but the wisdom books, right? And, and John was a prophet that, that literally dressed like the prophets that came before him and picked up the prophetic mantle and was talking about repent, impending judgment, you know, make, make a way. It's, it's, so we've got, we've got law, we've got prophets, we've got wisdom. But oh, guess what happens at the end of the book? Whenever he says, go and make disciples, I'm about to blow your mind. That mirrors Cyrus's decree. So Matthew's book ends the same way the Tanakh ends. Cyrus says, all the nations of the world have been given to me. And, he, and then he says where he got the authority from. He says that it was, it was Yahweh, the God of Israel. And then he said, go. Yes, in Second Chronicles. Which is really important about that is that if you think, well, yeah, but that's not how my Old Testament ends. Because <laughs> yours ends with Malachi. That's the Protestant ordering of the books. The Jewish ordering of the books is that your Old Testament ends with Second Chronicles, with Cyrus's decree. So what does Yeshua do? He shows up. He, he's been resurrected. He says, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Go. The book and his life embodies the story of Israel. So I said all of that to say, what is the reality of the crucifixion and the resurrection? Okay, this is where it's gonna get this is where it's gonna get deep. So Yeshua is on the road to Jerusalem and he starts to get really frank with the people around him. He says, Hey look, I'm gonna go and I'm gonna be killed, tortured. They're gonna do unspeakable things to me. But on the third day I'm gonna I'm gonna be raised. And they, they, they miss that part. Right? But but what's what's he saying that he's gonna do? He's gonna go into Jerusalem and take onto himself all of the things, the sins that separated humans from God in the first place. I'll prove it. <laughs> he's gonna, he's gonna go and, and confront a corrupt priesthood. A, a corrupt priesthood arrests him, and they actually are are deceptive and try to find false charges against him. Hello, serpent and Adam and Eve. And then he's gonna suffer treachery and violence, the most violent death for his day. I don't even think you guys understand. Whenever we get there, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to spit some facts about crucifixion just so you understand. He was brutally murdered. Violence. Treachery. Hello, Cain and Abel. Noah. Right? This is the beginning of humanity's story and the beginning of Israel's story. Because remember, the, the story starts out with real wide lens and then zooms in real quick to Abraham. Right? And then he's going he's gonna to take onto himself this, this power hungriness and this, this corrupt greed, right? This, this empire, this power from Herod and the Roman authorities. Hello, Babel. The very things that caused God to start an initiative through the people called Israel, through Abraham, are the things that he takes onto himself. So, remember, sin is what? It's, it's, it's death. The, 
Sin is a debt whose payment is to die. Right? And, and just like any person who got murdered, he takes on the wage of that debt, and he dies. But that is not where the story ends. See, he keeps repeatedly saying that the resurrection is a sign. You bet it is. It's, what is it a sign of? Because if death can only be defeated by life, it's a sign that bondage has become liberation. Because we're going to die too. Right? But the hope in, in, in his resurrection is that we will also live again. Right? So, um, I lost my train of thought. Uh, here, I'll, I'll find it really quick. Yeah, so, so uh, bondage became liberation and, and the debt has been nullified. Right? Therefore, listen, this is really important. This is how I personally put this together. The journey to the cross, the whipping and the mockery and the beating and the, dece- the, the deceit and the lies and the greed and the power and the jealousy, all of that was a confrontation of, of the power of sin which leads to death. He, con- he confronted the very powers that cause you to die. Sin. And he took it, he took it onto himself, only to be raised to live again. So, so the cross was a confrontation of sin and its wage, which is death, and the resurrection was a victory over those things. See, the cross and the resurrection are inseparable. They're one picture that have to go together. Right. But we celebrate them as separate holidays and events, even if they're within a few days. No, you can't have a resurrection without death, and a resurrection makes no sense if you've never died. Right. Okay? So, so then what happens? So, yes, we still struggle with sin, right? But the idea is that this is an invitation through our repentance to participate in a new way of life. This, look, guys, this is New Testament language 101. Read Paul. Read the letters, the epistles of Peter and John. All this language of, I died with, with Christ, and he lives in me. Before, for me, that was always this mystical idea, like, no, it's participation, solidarity. In his life, and his death, he confronted these powers. Right? Empire, and violence, and suffering. And he wants us to do that as well. To confront it, even unto death, but to, but to oppose it with, what? Servitude, and justice. So, His resurrection is a promise of our resurrection. He died and was raised to life. We will also die. 
See, look, this is the mind-blowing thing about this. I hope I'm communicating it well. This is the mind-blowing thing about this. The New Testament does talk about him dying for us, but he didn't just die for us. He died with us as one of us. That's good. In solidarity with us. It's a Messiah who knows suffering. Look, I suffer. I'm mentally ill, literally. I deal with depression and anxiety. And, but whenever I remember that my Messiah also suffered and, and also and confronted the things that were evil in the world, I'm empowered. I'm, I'm encouraged and invited to participate in his life, the one that was lived and the one that lives now. Yeah, that's good. So one day, make no mistake, we will still we still s- struggle with our sins, but the wage has been paid by the first resurrection, because one day we will all be resurrected, and then that is the that is the single event that triggers the restoration of all things, and gets us back to the Edenic ideal. A new Exodus was accomplished. We were brought out of our bond. Okay? And I, what I want you guys to really just, just get is the cross was a confrontation of evil and a conquering over it through life. The re- and the resurrection was conquering it through life. But now that he does live, we have to participate That's the money, yeah. So think, Paul says you were baptized and died with Christ and were raised again. I mean, all these passages should should come right to mind. This is all participation. Participate. And Yeshua says, pick up your cross, follow me. Whenever we're told to imitate Christ, it's in light of the crucifixion and resurrection. A confrontation of what is evil and bad in the world to restore it to what God had originally intended. So I think that I've ranted enough now, and we'll talk about this more as we go on, okay? But I hope that this was helpful for someone, because, um, and, and we'll talk about more, some, we'll talk about all the theories of atonement, okay? We're going to talk about all the theories for what happened on the cross. This is, this is the one that I think works best for me, because here's the thing, there are theories of atonement, and people have have quantified it and turned the diamond to use that metaphor for centuries now actually for about 1500 years so it's not that one's wrong and one's right this is just one that I think in light of the context of Matthew's gospel and the biblical story makes the most sense for me and has, has actually healed me and saved me which is the important part yeah that's good all right, so today was long, I know, and heavy and nerdy and detailed and all that, but this is so... Listen, there's, there are people claiming to represent our God that are crazy on both sides of the family and on all, all sides of the spectrum, right? I fully believe this. In my bones, I don't have any... I didn't get a word from God or anything like that. This is just what I feel like in my gut and in my bones. Not like we're the only ones that are right. I don't want to ever be that person. 
But I believe as God that God has called us, me and those that I have, I have the privilege to pastor, to a, a kind of balance that I just don't see everywhere. There's this there some places, but a kind of balance that that the world can look at us and go, there's some people that follow God, but they're not crazy. Right? They're not weird. You know, like, you get around some religious people and they smell funny. Like, there's just something not right. You know, there's something about what God is doing in my life personally and then by extension through the ministry that is supposed to impact the world. This world, your world, my world, maybe not the world at large, but where we live. And I... If I can't say it any other any other way, I think it's to bring back some validity to faith. Because Kyle can tell you, some of these young people here can tell you, this generation coming up, they don't give two flips about God. It wasn't like when we were growing up, older folks in here, where you like you just you get to church and you you believed in God because that's just what you did. And especially especially a God that you have to constantly push back His anger. Right, because right, what we talked about before, yeah. Right. So that this this thing is that that there needs to be some validity brought back to God, and to faith and to religion, but we're not going to do it by fundamentalism and by weird, you know, out out there. We need to be thinking people, and we need to be people that that can have these conversations with those that are struggling. So, um, I know again, like this was deep and it was long, and there was a lot to it. Next week is going to be even worse, um, but better. Um, <laughs> And it's going to be good. So um, the bottom line is that a lot of people ask these questions, but nobody ever wants to talk about the answers. And this is too important to me to not have these discussions. So, um, again, I hope this is hopeful. Go back and watch it. I'll have it edited and uploaded tomorrow. Thank you for everybody watching my live stream. We love you, and we're going to bless you, and I hope that you have a great week. Father, we bless you, and thank you for our live stream family. As we say goodbye to them, uh, we will spend the next few minutes together, but we will say goodbye to those who are watching online, and we just pray that you they have the best week, that they, uh, they are able to partner with Messiah and to, to walk beside Him. And while we have faith in Messiah, let us, Father, have more of the faith of Messiah. Let us partner with Him. Let us do what He did, think like He thought, believe what He believed, take the actions that He did. Let us, let us exercise the faith of Messiah. As you again try to partner and participate with us in changing this world and turning people towards your glory. We love you and we bless you through Yeshua, our incredible Messiah, who not only do we focus on his death, but we focus on his life and we seek to imitate it and participate in it. We bless you in Yeshua's name. Amen and amen.